0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Courtney Klein. If I had to sum up Courtney in a word, that word would be dreamer. From her early childhood dream of wanting to be Katie Couric, the twists and turns that life has thrown her way courtney is on a mission to leave this world a little bit better than how she found it courtney is the co-founder and ceo of seed spot a social impact incubator responsible for helping ignite the dreams of entrepreneurs who want to use business as a force for good in this episode courtney shares many valuable lessons learned lessons like it's better to take the business card and not the credit card, and how you should never doubt yourself because there are plenty of people out there who will do that for you. We dive deep into the current state of our country's educational system with a specific emphasis on how SeedSpot is addressing the solution to give our high school graduates the real life skills and knowledge necessary to make a meaningful contribution to the world. We'll also explore why SeedSpot chose not to take equity in the ventures they are supporting and how this controversial decision has served as a beacon for the organization, a beacon that has landed SeedSpot as one of the top three incubators on the planet. In addition to being the co-founder and CEO of SeedSpot, Courtney's a new mom and an Ironman finisher. We'll explore the impact of both of these and how they've impacted her life. If Courtney represents the future of leadership, I'll be the first to admit I'm feeling pretty damn good about where this world is headed. Enjoy this inspiring and raw interview with Courtney Klein. Well, ladies and gentlemen, joining me today is the one and the only Courtney Klein. Courtney, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Oh,
0: my God, it's so good to chat with you and to be able to do it in this venue is really awesome. So thanks so much for joining us uh, or of for joining me. So, Uh, You know, there's probably some folks out there who don't know who you are, and and surprising as that may be, uh, given what you've accomplished so far this early in your career, let's start with, who is Courtney Klein? How would you answer that?
1: Boy, start with a hard question. Right. Uh, Who is Courtney Klein? I'm a dreamer, I'm a doer, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a mother, a sister, an Ironman finisher, Um, I think more than anything, though, I'm a person in the world that believes in the power of a dream and the power of individuals being bold enough and brave enough to share that dream with the world and get the support they need to make it come to life is kind of what my whole career and and life's work has really focused on thus far.
0: Well, then let's uh, let's go with this dream scenario, this dream theme, if you will. So when you were growing up as a kid, what was your dream?
1: My dream actually was to become Katie Couric. I wanted to live in New York and work on national television. Um, but that dream shifted. Uh, even though I started in the college as a broadcast journalist major, I took a trip after my freshman year in college into a super rural village in Mexico and saw firsthand how the rest of the world actually lived. I was in a rural village called Akil, about two and a half hours inland from Cancun, and witnessed for the first time at the age of 19 how most of the world actually lives. And we burned our toilet paper and showered in the rain and um, you know slept in palapa huts. And it was the richest experience I had ever had because the community itself believed in community and believed in change and believed in education and and really just had a hope and optimism for what the future could look like. And so on that premise, I came back and the dream shifted a little bit. Uh, into wanting to build an organization that would educate other young people about what the rest of the world actually looked like and then empower them to create change.
0: What uh, during your, your early college career, what made you decide to take that trip in the first place?
1: You know, I think I was stirring a little bit, uh, as we all do, uh, just feeling like I wasn't quite on my life's path. Um, broadcast journalism, once I was in it, felt different than what I expected it to be. And so I was jockeying a little bit. And then an opportunity came up. It was um, a group, a youth group that was taking a trip down. And I signed up. And I'll never forget calling my mom and saying, I'm going to go into a rural remote village. And she said, you're going where? With who? For how long? <laughs> um, and it was one of those moments where you kind of buck what your parents' expectations might be of you. And I couldn't I couldn't be more thankful for, for having the opportunity and kind of taking the risk and putting myself in a different environment, uh, that really pushed my own level of comfort and, um, yeah, shifted my worldview dramatically.
0: Yeah. So as you think back about that trip and that experience, uh, clearly a very pro- had a very profound impact on you so much so that you decided to change the focus of your entire life away from your childhood dream. And it shifted into something far different. H- how would you describe Based on that experience, what this new dream and this new focus in your life, how, how would you summarize what that was at the time?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, I remember being afraid, um, afraid of judgment. You know, I set out on a path and a lot of people expected me to, to become a broadcast journalist and, you know, parental influence and former educators and peers and colleagues and professors at the time that expected me to pursue a path that I had committed to. And so part of it was fear and kind of shaking their own expectations and having to come into my own and realizing that I had the autonomy to dream differently and so I remember specifically coming back from Yucatan and having one professor that had to sign the paperwork in order to authorize, you know, me change my major. And that professor looked me square in the eye and asked me why I wanted to change my major. And I, I told him I want to start a nonprofit when I graduate and empower youth and kind of looked at me with a little bit of scorn and said, oh, a lot of students come in here and say they want to start a nonprofit. And a few of them actually do, but here's your paperwork and good luck to you. And it was this very like jarring, like you're supposed to be a believer in dream. You're an educator, and I remember this like thorn in my side and uh, a friend, as I relayed the story, reminded me to never doubt yourself because plenty of other people will do that for you. <laughs> and I remember there being so much doubt and so much fear and, you know, this unknown entity of what, what will this actually become? And, and I think part of, uh, part of any entrepreneur lives and breathes on that, on that fear and that unknown a little bit. Um, but that was certainly something looking back that I remember very prominently.
0: You know, it's really interesting to think about, you know, we obviously fast forwarded very quickly from a childhood dream of wanting to be in broadcast journalism and hold someone like Katie Couric up as such an idol and and role model. And then, you know, fast forward through childhood, you go to college, you take this really unbelievable, profound trip uh, early. uh, I think you said it in your freshman year, during Mm -hmm. your sophomore, junior, senior year, were you second guessing yourself along the way? about the change
1: you know it's a good question i don't think i ever looked back to be honest i plowed right through um and once i was set on the new dream until there was reason to really think otherwise i was going full force Um, And I knew that it was going to take time in college to build the relationships and to, you know, get an organization structured and secure funding. And so I took my time in those three years of college to really learn everything I could. I shadowed executives. I interned at places. I volunteered. I worked at different nonprofits just to get a lay of the land for what I was really stepping into. And I do think that gave me some confidence along with my education to know exactly what I was getting myself into. Um, And yet there were still many, (laughs) many unknown things once you actually dive in. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't look back.
0: So it's interesting, you know, and another aspect of this that just uh, I find interesting is that so here you were during your childhood, your, your middle school, your high school years, you're getting geared up for whatever preparatory uh, courses you're taking for broadcast journalism. You go through what sounds like a semester or two with that being the focus. You take this trip and all of a sudden, boom, your entire life changes, mm-hmm. and you're going to focus on something totally different than broadcast journalism, which to me begs the question, is what's being taught in middle school, high school, our more formative years when we're, when we're young, um, are we actually prepping kids to go into, whether it be college or just right into the workforce, with the right skills uh, in order for them to choose properly? I, I, I'm assuming you think about that often.
1: I do. I do think about it often. And while I'm, you know, a decade plus out of K-12 education, I remember feeling then and observing high school and junior high and elementary students now, you know, teaching to the test and the stress of homework and test taking and results and metrics that in the real world, now that I'm on the other side of it, have no real world application. And yet the institution of education, for the most part, continues to teach to that. And so, something that I question and something I wish I would have been asked at a younger age is, you know, what problems in the world do you see? What problems in the world do you want to become more aware of? What are you observing? What's frustrating you? What's upsetting your peers? Or what are you reading in the newspaper headlines? And how can we equip this next generation to actually change it and to develop the tactical skills and the soft skills and the communication and relationship building and everything that it takes to create change and to live a fulfilling life. Um, and that to me, I think, is the question for this next decade or two of education. And how do we shift to be student centric, to be problem centric, and to really amply prepare students to solve problems in the world?
0: It's, it's, I mean, that's a great point. And, and I have to think about, at least for me, what comes up is, you know, when I was going through school, when you were going through school. Technology was nowhere near as ubiquitous as it is today. Um, having access, or just the knowledge of knowing what problems actually exist in the far reaches of the world that you never read about in the Sunday paper, or, you know, the newspaper, which was the dominant media, or the ten o'clock news mm-hmm. back when we were growing up. You know, we can't we can't bury our heads in the sand anymore because it's just that the problems are so in our face, and I just wonder if that Um, has been, has been, and is continuing to serve as such a, just a beacon and changing the narrative just because we now know that these problems exist. Whereas before, maybe we kind of knew, but we really didn't. And we certainly Mm -hmm. didn't know to the depths that they were affecting
1: people. Absolutely. I mean, I remember I was in sixth grade and I got a fax machine and that was super exciting, right? (laughs) You fast forward to sixth graders today who have not only connection to friends around the world but have access to such robust information through social media that they're witnessing in real time atrocities and natural disasters and domestic issues i mean you name it and yet, how many of them are frustrated by this feeling or this notion that, oh, you're too young. Oh, once you grow up, you'll be able to solve these problems. Well, when you get to be in your 30s and 40s and have money, you can donate to cause, et etc. And I just feel this empathy for this next generation witnessing you know, real impact that affects them and their peers and the rest of their life. And yet, are we giving them the tools to actually create change? By and large, from what I've witnessed now kind of working in high schools over the course of my career, no, these students don't feel a sense of empowerment, nor do they feel like they have the tactical skills to actually create change with an issue that they're deeply passionate about changing. And that's a problem.
0: Yeah, that is a problem. And obviously a problem that uh, you've been focusing on. So let's talk about about SeedSpot, the organization that you co-founded, what, some four and a half going on five years ago. Uh, share with us a little bit about how the idea of seed Spot came to be.
1: Sure. Um, So coming out of college, I did start a nonprofit that worked with young people, empowered them to create change, and led that organization successfully uh, for seven years, really only because I had great mentors, great leaders, great champions that rallied around this 21-year-old kid about to graduate that had a dream. And because of that journey and the first seven years of my career, being so surrounded by mentors and champions and people that believed in a dream. When I exited that organization, I really started to question, where do you go? you know, if you don't have a university or if you don't have a peer network, where do you go if you have a seed of an idea and you want to create change in the world? And now, you know, there's incubators and accelerators all over the country, but most of them still focused on high tech, high growth companies. And so SeedSpot really set out on a mission to serve entrepreneurs that otherwise wouldn't have access to mentorship, education, training, capital, office space, and demo day presentations. And so, Four and a half years ago, you know, this vision to build SeedSpot as an epicenter in Phoenix, of all places, exclusively supporting social entrepreneurs. So, product, service, or technology, anyone that wanted to make the world a better place. We say we're agnostic as it relates to legal structure, for profit or nonprofit. Um, And now, statistically, you know, 49% of the entrepreneurs we've worked with are female founded. Uh, 40% are minority. Um, and we're starting to buck the trends of what traditional Silicon Valley might look like in terms of tech startups or high growth firms. And so SeedSpot, you know, to make a long story short, has really been on this journey to level the playing field for social entrepreneurs of all backgrounds, of all disciplines, to have equal access to help accelerate their dreams to make the world a better place.
0: So, this idea, when, when this idea, when this idea, when this idea—let me get my words right here—came uh, to life, what was the community's response? The people closest to you, and then those maybe uh, you know one or two degrees away from you. Uh, did people think you're nuts? Did they think it's about time? What what was the general community reaction?
1: I would say, by and large, it was kind of a mixed bag. To be honest, there were there were many that said. You know this is the place, and now is the time, and this is the right model you know here 's five thousand bucks to help you get started um, and People did extend their networks and opened up their offices and you know networks and rolodexes and everything to help raise the money to launch the initial idea and then credit to the entrepreneurs. Without them, we're nothing, right? So we had to have people that believed and trusted us enough to throw their idea on the line. So I would credit kind of the early adopters of the early donors, early board members, early staff, as well as the entrepreneurs themselves that trusted us with the dream. And yet on the flip side of that, there were certainly many people that said, you're going to do this where? You're going to do some Phoenix? Like there's not a climate for entrepreneurship, but the capital's all tied up in real estate. And I think what that demonstrated for us now, five years in, globally ranked, nationally Ranked is that it can happen anywhere if you rally the community and start to shift the perspective away from traditional means of economic development or community transformation into something new. And I have to say that Phoenix has wholly embraced it, and we wouldn't be here without the Phoenix community now.
0: You know, it's interesting because Phoenix, um, in my opinion, and I've been here coming up on 20 years, so by no means a native, but certainly not a newcomer. The one thing that I've noticed about Phoenix is how welcoming the business and and general community is and i think part of that stems from because a good chunk if not you know upwards of 3 quarters of the community here is from somewhere else and they know what it's like to start over in a new city and to begin to make those connections and find your your tribe if you will and i'm wondering if you've ever given some thought to seed spot as an organization that was really going to be dependent upon rallying of the community to support the idea is a direct result of that DNA fabric that Phoenix is this melting pot of people from so many different walks of life, different geographies, different uh, backgrounds on and on that part of what Makes seed spot so great is it's this unifying beacon that brings everyone together in a place where everyone is almost well, almost everyone is from somewhere else.
1: I think there is some truth to that, and and I think it it can exist in other communities. Um, you know, I think in any city where there's. Um, a a sense of, of change, uh, a desire and a willingness of transformation and Phoenix, you know, you look back and think, you know, we brought water to the desert, right? (laughs) We're living in a, in a 120 degrees, right? Like you gotta be kind of innovative to pull that off. Right. And I think the same is true in other communities that have overcome immense hurdles just to subsist. I mean, just to create civilization in some of the cities that we now look to as some of the greatest in the world. You know, a hundred years ago, there's no way. And so that spirit of innovation and of a willingness of change and transformation, I do believe we're starting to see more of in Phoenix. Um, and that's a credit to a lot of people that have worked for decades to, to lay the foundation for not only SeedSpot, but other organizations to be successful.
0: So Obviously, SeedSpot's focus, as you mentioned, is about providing this place where entrepreneurs who desire to make the world a better place can come, get the guidance, the support that they need to bring their ideas to life. And this notion of making the world a better place is, well, in many circles, somewhat cliche, like, oh, yeah, of course I want to make the world a better place. How do you really vet whether or not the authenticity of an entrepreneur who has an idea wants this idea to make the world a better place versus I want to maximize how much money I can make? Because I think this is a good business idea.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we have a social impact scale that we built and while that is a numerical kind of qualifier that we give to any applicant that comes through SeedSpot, I have to say when we sit down and look eye to eye, you know, in front of an entrepreneur and hear directly from them, why? Why are you doing this? And I think the intention of the entrepreneur tells us everything. And we hope they're wildly successful and we hope they're profitable and we hope they get great financial returns to their investors. But if that is their sole motivation, they're not a fit for seed spot. And I would say that's hard for others in the community to rally around. And so we do look, if there was one word to attribute to what we look for, it's intention.
0: And you think by sitting down, listening to someone, feeling their intentions that yours and the team's uh let's call it the bs meter is pretty darn near accurate and you've been able to uh to rely on that and make sure the right people are getting into the program
1: yeah and i mean i think just like any you know bs meter you got to have a few failures to know <laughs> what what really what really smells off and i, I can't say we've hit 100 percent, but we're in the 90s for sure um And that is, it's really, you know, the ability to sit and feel and and look into someone's eyes and ask really tough questions and make sure that their integrity and their pursuit and their intention is right. Um, yeah, something we take really seriously, and you can smell a shark in the fish tank, um, and that goes across the board, not just for the entrepreneurs we work with, but for the investors that we invite in, the mentors, our staff. Um, we hold really tight to that culture of, of protecting the integrity of the idea and of the purity of, of creating change, and like I said, you can make a ton of money doing that, and we hope they do, um, but you've got to be driven a little bit by the problem that you seek to solve.
0: So I, I want to rewind just for a moment. And as you were graduating from school from, uh, from the great Arizona State University, I know you're a proud Sun Devil. And Very
1: proud Sun Devil. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. And which, by the way, not being from Arizona, as I shared, this rivalry that exists between uh, U of A and ASU is just absolutely fascinating. I, I, I love the, <laughs> the depth that the, dare I call it, hatred that each other has for one another goes. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive. Uh, Maybe we can have that conversation for another time. Um, (laughs) When you were graduating, um, I recall either reading or seeing that you, a a real gift was bestowed upon you and it was a gift as a mentor. Can you talk about who this mentor was and what this individual meant for you dating back to the beginning of your, well, post-college career?
1: Sure. Um, so, as I was graduating, there was a competition uh, for entrepreneurs, student entrepreneurs, to win money, mentorship, and an office space. And. To make a long story short, I received $1,000, um, anticipated 20 but it was $1,000, uh, <laughs> and uh, office space and a mentor, and the mentor that was gifted to me was Dr. Laddie Core, the former president of Arizona State University, and you couldn't ask for a better mentor and a better human being than Dr. Core. above and beyond the fact that he had an immense network, he knew everybody in town, he was leading, you know, now one of the largest the largest public university in the country at the time, one of the top five. Um, and he was just this incredibly humble, gracious, kind, you know, sit down in front of me and tell me what you need, Courtney. And I came into that first meeting with a wish list, which I still carry today. And think any entrepreneur, any person trying to pursue something, what is it that you need? Uh, and for me, it was, you know, lawyers and accountants and designers and board members and school districts to pilot programs and, and capital and all of these things. And, Dr. Kaur made a few key introductions for me that really opened the floodgates for me to network in the community and to build long-lasting, meaningful relationships. Um, but it started with him as an anchor. Um, and I think any good entrepreneur, um, you know, try to seek out, if you don't have already that that network, um, seeking out someone that believes in you and is willing to kind of carry you along. Uh, and Dr. Kaur was certainly that for me
0: so from a an ongoing relationship standpoint safe to assume that uh you guys still chat today
1: yes regularly all the time and the number of you know tissue boxes and uh <laughs> <laughs> hard conversations that he's coached me through uh he is i mean truly a, a confidant and i think any good mentor is that um you know, it's not, not a person that you have to beat around the bush or paint a rosy picture for, but someone you can be really authentic about the trials and errors and hardships and tough moments as well as the celebratory ones.
0: That's awesome. I know relationships and, and building the right ones and maintaining and deepening uh, relationships is, is really important to you. And uh, there was another individual who I think you learned an incredibly valuable lesson from. And the lesson is something along the lines of, you know, you have a choice oftentimes when you're an entrepreneur or a business person and you can either take the credit card because you might need some money, whether it be for capital, donation, whatever, or you can take the business card uh, as a connection and somebody that might be able to open up additional long-term channels for you. Can you talk a little bit, bit about this this notion or this uh, crossroads of, should you take the business card or should you take the credit card?
1: Absolutely. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. Jerry Bisgrove is the individual reference. Uh, Jerry, an incredibly generous philanthropist and successful businessman. And uh, I met him at an event and he heard me speak. And I remember he patted me on the shoulder and said, you know, I like what we had to say, kid, And he pulled out his wallet and he said, what card would you like, the business card or the credit card? (laughs) And I said, uh, (laughs) thinking in the back of my mind, you know, worth, worth millions if not billions, I desperately need capital. We're at a critical moment of growth. And I said, I'll take the business card. And I took the business card and followed up with Jerry. And when I got to his office, he was in this huge high leather rollback chair and he pushed a button on his desk and the door closed. <laughs> and I was like, terrified that this like magical, mystical philanthropist had made the door close. And I was terrified thinking, you know, what is it that I'm going to ask for? And he cut straight to the chase and asked what he could do. And I said, you know, Jerry, I'm really interested in building long-term sustainability. And I know that comes with relationships and people and advisement and stuff. If there's any way you can introduce me to other people like you that have had success I would love to learn from them. And so a few weeks later, Jerry said he'd host a luncheon for me and invite a few of his friends. And I showed up at the Biltmore, a pretty prominent place and didn't know how to park at the Biltmore, let alone figure out, you know, which fork to use or which knife to cut with. And, um, and I sat there and told my story and we raised over a hundred thousand dollars on the spot. And from that, you know, I recognized that part of, The process and Jerry's friends were the top CEOs of foundations and corporations across the state. I had this immense access um, to incredible human beings and you know, I would say of the 12 there, I still am in touch with 10 of them and continue to mentor and coach and advise. But it was through Jerry and through that initial kind of business card that I recognized there's nothing more powerful than a relationship and there's no transaction that is more meaningful than a human connection. And so the ability to always take the business card, always build the relationship, and everything else, capital relation, you know, everything else will flow from that. Um, and to this day, uh, I had dinner with Jerry a few weeks ago, um, and that's a relationship that I'll have forever.
0: Um, What's interesting about that, and, and maybe perhaps a bit of a loose tie to my next comment and, and question, but I think there's a, a connection there. At least it makes sense in my head is that. When you set SeedSpot up, you and the other co-founder set SeedSpot up, I think you guys made a very definitive decision and, and a high impact decision that you weren't going to take equity in any of the ventures that you were going to support. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. that's a model that's very, very different and to me feels very much along the lines of Take the business card, not the credit card. Can you talk about Mm -hmm. how you chose to set SeedSpot up in a way that's frankly a bit against uh, the current of most incubators and accelerators around the world?
1: It is, and, and I would say a bit controversial in that way in so much as, you know, we are often questioned, well, how do you sustain your long-term sustainability, right, if you're not taking equity in the upside of these companies? And I've always believed that the relationships will, will come back, and entrepreneurs that are successful, you know, because of SeedSpot or because of someone they met at SeedSpot or on their own volition that they felt a the community at SeedSpot, the hope is that those monies trickle back through human capital or through, you know, philanthropic capital or whatever it may be. But we did. We set really strong guidelines in our first year that we were not going to take equity. We wanted the entrepreneurs to feel safe, to feel like we didn't have ulterior motives. And we also didn't want it to sway our judgment in any way to say, well, you know, this is a high impact company, but not a high growth company. Um, Therefore, we're not going to take them because we're not going to get an upside. Um, And we didn't want to dilute the the, kind of the, the rich culture that we felt like we could create by having you know, everything from micro enterprises to high growth, high tech companies and everything in between. Um, we've worked with entrepreneurs from the age of 18 to 82 in product service technology across all industries. Um, and that kind of melting pot has really created a sense of community for a lot of the entrepreneurs to feel a connection to people that they otherwise wouldn't meet because they're not, they're not similar in, in one way or the other. Um, so I, I continue to advocate for the no equity stake Um and yeah, it's, it's become part of our DNA.
0: Do you think that has had an impact in the types of people you've been able to attract and hire to join the seed spot team to help you uh, really continue seed spots growth?
1: I do, I do. And I think that the cultural implications of a lot of that notion of protecting the entrepreneur, um, you know, it it kind of bleeds through all of our culture as an organization and through our hiring process, our interviewing process, our onboarding process. We really test our team to make sure that their integrity and their belief in the power of a dream um, holds tight. And, you know, this notion that, Um, dreams aren't real or it's a soft or superficial, you know, word to use (laughs) deeply in your core, uh, whether you acknowledge it or call it a dream, you have an aspiration, you have a vision, you have something that you're pursuing. And that's really something that you can't dismiss, um, in anyone. No one should be dismissed in that, right? Um that we all have to dream and to create and to build. But I know a lot of incubators will tear down. uh, A lot of investors will chew apart. um, And there may be a time and a place for that. But SeedSpot really believes and holds true and holds our team accountable to making sure that we're creating an environment that really breeds safety and security and um, the ability for a community to come and, and have the hard conversations but do so in a way that encourages and doesn't tear down.
0: So I want to read a quote to you that uh, I, I found. It was It's about a year old. Uh, it's by Bono, the lead singer from U2. And the quote is, I'm late to realizing that it's you guys. It's the private sector. It's commerce that's going to take the majority of people out of extreme poverty. And as an activist, I almost found that hard to say. And again, that's a quote from Bono. And I think it came from uh, last year's uh, World Economic Forum meeting, I believe. Uh, Don't hold me to it, but I do know that that is his quote. I share that because I'm curious as someone who has been primarily involved in not for profits for the majority, if not your entire career, do you struggle with the notion of this tug of war between doing good in the nonprofit space versus? actually using for-profit as a force for good. Um, uh, uh, Talk talk to us a little bit about Mm -hmm. that.
1: Yes. uh, I definitely used to struggle. And the reason I think I struggled was because I was brought up in a generation where it was, it was polarizing, right? For-profits, uh, bad, nonprofits good, for profits in it for money, nonprofits in it for heart. Um, the business school was separate from the nonprofit school. Philanthropists viewed those dollars of investment differently than the financial return dollars of investment. It was just a very like black and white. And I think we started to see as I was coming out of college some of the gray um, starting to materialize. And now <laughs> I am in the camp that the most effective way to create change is to have a viable, successful, sustainable revenue model. And that comes with the assumption that you can sustain as a for-profit without the subsidies of philanthropy. And so it has shifted my perspective dramatically, and I think even in the past two years, doing more reading and seeing more entrepreneurs and just thinking about the global problems that we have to solve. Not convinced anymore that they're going to be solved by charity or by government. I really am convinced that it's going to take market forces and consumers and a buying power and a buying pattern and entrepreneurs that are willing to stick their neck out there and build for profits that hold true to a mission and a purpose, um, but create good jobs and elevate people out of poverty and create and tackle some of the big, big, big challenges of our time. Um, I am convinced now more than ever that business and for-profits um, and capitalism is that force for good that will perpetuate through the next several generations. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know what the future looks like for nonprofits in that light, but I do question if there is a role continuing for nonprofits. And if so, how does that change if, um, if capitalism really is on a mission to solve global issues?
0: Those are really big questions
1: i do not answers, but <laughs> I
0: stir with them at night. <laughs> well, that, hey, you got to start by asking the it's questions, a big shift. right? Yeah, it is. It yeah,
1: is. but there there is a big shift, and I, I think we're starting to see it in in the business schools and in colleges. I think we're starting to see it in just the consciousness of the next generation in terms of their buying patterns. Um, there's a shift coming. But I do wonder what the what the world will look like well, 20, it, 30 years from now.
0: Yeah, and it's super interesting, too, to think about, you know, the, the younger generations today, those that have been exposed to all the problems that the world is facing at a very profound level. Um, and this idea of them pursuing... Uh, work that really does make a difference. That makes them feel good. That they're making a positive contribution, and balancing that with, of course, making a, a living so that they can pay their bills and buy the things that they want to buy. It's just it is. It's a really interesting time, and you know, I I, I know that SeedSpot in particular uh, is choosing to tackle some of this uh, this this balance between nonprofit and for profit, and giving kids the necessary exposure to how to tackle some of these big hairy problems that the world faces at a a very early age, at the high school age. And I think a lot of this came through a result of the work that you're doing through SeedSpot. And it was almost a sort of falling ass backwards into this opportunity that I think came as a result of a boot camp you did a couple summers ago aimed at high school kids. Can you talk a little bit about um, what has now become the SeedSpot Next program?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The notion being supporting the next generation of of problem solvers. And we did host a summer camp. We had 25 students tear through the office space for five days, 40 hours. And they came up with problems that they wanted to solve. And one student team in particular that kind of became the exemplar of the summer camp was a student team that identified that there was 1.5 million amputees in the United States. And we taught them how to do customer interviewing and really dig deep into the problems. And as they started to talk to more amputees throughout the week, they recognized that amputees often have a, a tough time connecting or finding other amputees um, to make friends with or to share you know, life with. And and so the, the challenge that... Some some of the amputees had expressed was that you know, when they buy a pair of shoes what do you do with the other shoe right it's a simple problem but if you don't have a prosthetic limit the other shoe might sit in your closet or on your shelf and so the students came up with the idea that what if there was a match.com that would connect amputees That if i had a left size seven and you needed a left size seven we could become quote unquote soul mates s-o-l-e um, and the website was launched called trade my shoe and the student team demonstrated for us in this microcosm of five days that if you give students the opportunity to think critically about a problem, to dig deep and really understand the issue or the tertiary or secondary issues that come out of that you know, first problem, what type of innovation can you create and how can you build a viable business model around that? And so those particular students got heavily recruited and are now studying entrepreneurship in college. And we've since spun out of a five-day summer camp into a full-blown curriculum that we're now teaching um, teachers how to teach it. And so we are partnering with schools all over the country, have a curriculum that's rolling out as an elective course on campus um, to help students identify a problem they want to solve and build the skills necessary to create change.
0: I mean, talk about something that, that sounds like just the absolute duh, no-brainer that high school districts around the country need to adopt and adopt fast as more and more pressure is being put on what is being taught and how are we truly readying kids for whatever the next step may look like post-high school. I mean, has the overall reception to this program been um, – uh, is it meeting expectations? Is it beyond expectations? What What's your feeling on this next program?
1: You know, I think that it's, it's exceeding expectations and yet um, disheartening at the same time because what we're hearing from schools and administrators is how desperately they have wanted to teach real-world skills for so long. And district administrators and teachers, I mean, they have been championing the student for so long, and yet the state requirements that they have to abide by the test is what stifles that. And so we've kind of found a way in that we've mapped our curriculum to Common Core and CTE standards to make it easy for administrators to check those boxes. But if you think about it, building a budget – For a business venture brings in math and research and critical thinking, the ability to pitch at a demo day that we host brings in English and public speaking and presentation skills, Um, even doing research about competitors, thinking about the scientific method or technology or access to information or analysis, all of those skills that you don't have to teach in a silo in math, social studies, English, lit, et cetera, um, that we're now kind of teaching holistically. So, what's fascinating for us is what does this evolution look like, and how do we continue to listen to what administrators and teachers are telling us that they desperately want to teach this, and how can we really build a product? And an offering that they can easily weave in and meet the state standards and, and hopefully excel and supersede, you know, the results that they've had historically because students actually care about this class because it's tied to something that they're dedicated to solving a problem around.
0: Well, and I would imagine, too, you know, as, as a father of, of two young girls uh, who are going to be in high school before I know it, if they were to come home from freshman or sophomore class or whatever the case may be, talking to, to myself and my wife about, this particular class and a problem and a business idea that they're going to want to bring to life. What a rewarding thing for the parents as well, or the family unit to really rally around what it is that the, you know, the, the, the child is learning and very different from Mm -hmm. not, not necessarily more or less important than algebra homework or history homework. I'm not saying that those things don't matter, but wow, what a different dinner time conversation and a, a way to really engage the family unit in the child's education.
1: Mm-hmm. And I would argue that that, you know, algebra and, and math and, and homework, it matters only so much as it's empowering students to be agents of change in their future. Right. And anything taught in a silo or a bubble or um, that doesn't have real world application isn't relevant anymore. And I think that's the shift that we're seeing in education and this notion of, of relevancy in k-12 and whether you want to call it 21st century skills or whatever it may be but but students have to be prepared to enter the real world and that looks like a very different education than even the one i had let alone the one my parents had and yet administrators and and schools are are desperately and and i have to credit them for being the champions to push to say that there is a different way and i think we're just happy to be part of that solution uh, and solving the problem amongst amongst many others that are trying to solve this very problem
0: so you've been just, uh, you've been steeped in helping people live their dreams, bring their dreams to reality. Um, uh, from an entrepreneurial level, from a nonprofit level, uh, what's the change that you want to see? Why are you doing all of this? <laughs>
1: Um that's a good question. I feel like I'm on a journey myself um i I feel like I'm here for a reason and I'm still exploring and iterating um on, on where that journey takes me and that may seem like a cap out answer um but I am kind of this this iterative uh this iterative dreamer, if you will that as I see a problem in front of me that I feel aligned to um I take on the challenge and tackle it and so you know, I think I've solved a few problems, or at least moved. It couldn't be solved. I've, I've attempted to solve some problems, and um, it's kept me hungry for, for bigger problems. And, and I do think at a macro level, um, having lived and, and traveled into developing countries, um, this notion of equality, um, this notion of an equal playing field, of equal opportunity, um, which naturally will come, you know, a time where – Poverty is obsolete or um, water is accessible to all. Uh, food security is something that we have solved for. I think about the equality across uh, demographics and continents. And that, that entices me in thinking about what is, what is the, the biggest trigger, what is the biggest lever we can pull to solve some of these problems. And I, I think I'm in my own path right now of iterating on what is that big lever? Um, is it education around the next generation? Is it, is it capitalism and kind of business as a force for good? Is it, um, some hybrid, you know, in between, I, I'm not sure what, uh, I think many struggle with what, what the magic bullet might be to, to solve for these problems, but, um, I'm in it for the, for the discovery. Um, I'm in it for figuring out what, what problem to tackle next. Um, and not yet knowing what that is. Um, but the end game for me is, is some, some form of equality across the board where poverty is obsolete and there's a level playing field for all to dream and aspire and and live. So
0: I have to ask how the heck does completing an Ironman fit into all of this? (laughs) (laughs) Other than I, I mean, congrats and oh my God, you're
1: crazy uh thanks <laughs> it was it was, yeah, I guess talk about an iterative journey uh I didn't own a bike at the time I couldn't swim, and I'd only run a five k um so that was that was definitely um a test of my own my own uh yeah I'm not sure what it was a test of of everything really um but yeah i you know it's funny to hear you actually frame it in that light, uh how does it fit in? I think for me, it was part of that notion of, of a journey. And at the time, I really didn't think, uh, you know, my aspiration at one point in my life was to do a half Iron Man. And then I finished the half Iron Man and I thought, well, I could do the full. And then I finished the full and I thought, well, if there's a, another full next week and I'm just going to do it again. Um, and that was something that, um, kind of kept me motivated and I was hungry for more and hungry for a bigger challenge. And so I think the corollary to draw is that that notion of being hungry for a bigger challenge going from a 5k to a 10k to a half to a full um you know that that's kind of in my DNA and and so I'm I'm hungry and continue to be hungry for the next uh, the next big challenge that I can take on well I still hopefully with less with less uh <laughs> less physical pain <laughs> 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 so than the uh, ironman training uh,
0: I can only imagine I can only so so speaking of uh uh, of, of things that, uh, boy, I, I was going to say something and, and, and in my, I said it in my head and thank God it didn't come out of my mouth. Cause I think it would have been highly inappropriate. Maybe we can talk about it offline, but I'm glad I didn't <laughs> record this. <laughs> so you're a CEO, you're a mother. Is it hard to balance the two?
1: Um, yes and no. You know, I've kind of taken a philosophy that, um, my daughter, you know, becomes and is part of my life and my family's life and my spouse's life. And, and that, you know, it's not a tangential thing that, that got added in or thrown on the side. And so, um. My daughter, almost a year old, has been on 60 flights with me. Um, she has been in at least three or four board meetings with me. She's toted around to several meetings. Um, she's on most staff calls if it's early morning or late at night. Um, and that's not to say that I'm training my daughter to be a workaholic, but I do feel like it's important for my daughter to see her mom um, thriving and passionate and and living a life that she's deeply committed to and... And wakes up every morning hungry for. And I think her feeling that energy is something that's really important to me. That being said, um, being a CEO, you know, I have the freedom and flexibility of schedule for the most part that, you know, I want to take take some time and take her to story time at the library or take an afternoon and work on a Saturday or whatever it means to catch up that she's kind of a fluid part of my everyday. Um, I have a conference room at my office, um, that she's in that our nanny comes to so I can pop out and see her and play. And, you know, I'm very fortunate and I know that's not a luxury for all. I feel incredibly privileged to have that. Um, but I've been intentional too about structuring and, and working to make sure that, um, it wasn't a separation that, my family life um is my work life and work life is family life. And at the end of the day, it's it's just the life choices that um my husband and I have made.
0: So for all of our uh for all of our nonprofit folks out there, uh and foundations and family offices and things of that nature, if you are uh going to be recruiting for one heck of an advancement or development uh executive, give it about 18 years and it sounds like there's one in the baby. <laughs> 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 oh. So uh, what's next for
1: SeedSpot? Well, SeedSpot received some funding uh, from the Kauffman Foundation about nine months ago. And Congrats. so we are preparing. Thank you. Um, talk about a dream come true. Um Yeah, it was incredible to receive funding from the Kauffman Foundation. And so we're expanding uh, to a second city in January of 2017. And we're working to really scale up this high school program to serve more schools um, across the country and in theory around the world that want to teach the next generation.
0: I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, Courtney, the work that that you and your team are doing at SeedSpot is awe-inspiring. I know you've graduated, uh, what, 160, 170 entrepreneurs and ventures through the program. Am I correct?
1: Yes. uh, Over that now uh, with our five-day boot camps, yeah, we're over 300 um, program participants across the board. And yeah, we just got our survey data back in. So soon to be released, all the impact data will come out from the past uh, four years of our work.
0: That's awesome. Well, I, can, I, I wish you and the team the absolute best as you continue your journey, uh, you personally, for the change in the world that you're creating. And again, just so appreciate you dedicating a really big chunk of your afternoon, spending it with me, sharing your story, uh, just re- really standing off of what you've accomplished so far and super optimistic for what I know you and the team will achieve in the near future. Wishing nothing but the best.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for
0: having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Courtney. I hope you enjoyed hearing Courtney's story. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this episode or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit YScouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at YScouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way.